Shabbat Shalom. I'm Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai In all the ways that you might be watching, whether that is online, on our mobile app, or any one of our television apps, from our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home each week where we worship the Lord and where we hear from the word of the Lord and his instruction. It's January 17th right now, and a couple of announcements and things that we have going on with the ministry that we're excited to tell you about. Uh, once again, Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp, registration for that is open right now. Uh, any of the youth that might be planning to join us uh, here in Oklahoma this summer, August 2nd through the 7th, uh, red, like I said, registration is open. You can go to CampYeshua.com and you can register there. Wonderful time, uh, the experience of youth camp uh, that we have that we've now been doing for uh, 18 years. This will be our 19th annual event and uh, lives have been changed uh, Friendships uh, that last a lifetime are made uh, at our youth camp. And so we encourage uh, you to be a part of Camp Yeshua. And so it's never too early to get excited for that. Another thing that we have uh, going on right now as well, we're running a fundraiser and we are getting ready to uh, be building and preparing to build uh, Messiah Media. This is a, an Internet television platform uh, that we are looking forward to that's going to be a free platform to view and watch many teachings uh, with throughout the Messianic Hebrew Roots movement. We already have over 20 ministries that have signed up that are willing to share their content as well. You can go to messiah.media. You can punch that into your browser and you can see um, some of the teases that we have for the number of ministries that are going to be sharing their content. And you can also make a donation there as well to help us to build this platform. We're looking forward to doing this and accomplishing this uh, here in the first quarter of 2020. And we think it's going to be an amazing outreach to a great number of people to have have lots of content in one location to watch and to be ministered to and edified in your most holy faith. So we're very excited about that. Um, we're also not forgetting about uh, Line of Land Ministries mobile apps. Right now, we have made many updates to the B'nai Shalom TV app on Roku. Uh, so if you haven't tuned into that recently, we encourage you to uh, pull up your Roku uh, device, uh, pull up the B'nai Shalom TV app, and you can see lots of new content that is there and available uh, for your viewing pleasure. We hope that, uh, once again, you're blessed by this broadcast and all the other things that we do here at Lion and Lamb Ministries. Um, we hope that you enjoy this free broadcast. If you're ever blessed and the Lord would stir in your heart to make a donation, you can do so at llgive.com, one-time donation, or sign up for one of our monthly donor tiers. And uh, we greatly appreciate that. And it's our heart and our passion to be good stewards of the Lord, Lord's resources and everything that we do here at Lion and Lamb Ministries. So we hope that you are blessed on this Sabbath day and that you are encouraged and strengthened as we enter into the rest of Sabbath so now let us set apart this Sabbath from the rest of the week with the Kiddush and the family blessings. We always hope that what we do here with this ministry is a blessing to you, ministers to you and to your family. And so from our family to yours, uh, thank you for once again inviting us into your home so that we can speak the words and the encouragement that the Lord has laid on our hearts and to share it with you. So once again, Shabbat Shalom from all of us here at Lionel Land Ministries. Now, let us set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Baruch Adonai. 
God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the chamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Chamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Micha mocha, ba'elim Adonai. Micha mocha, nedahar ba'chodesh. Nohorat echilot, Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat, la-drotam b'rit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael, ot-hi le-olam, k'shashet yamim asadunai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aretz v'yom ha-shavi, Shabbat v'yinafash. 
altogether. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha. Veheyu hadevarim haale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavecha. Vashinan tam lavanecha, vadepardabam beshiftecha, beyetecha, uvlechtecha, vederechu shakbika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totavolt binenecha, uketatama mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. By the rivers of Babylon We sat and wept When we remembered Zion And the land that we had left There on the willows We hung our hearts For there Okay. 
Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Shemot. 
Chapter 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Yaakov. They came each one with his household, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, Yisachah, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Yaakov were seventy in number, but Yosef was already in Egypt. Yosef died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Yosef. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pitom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out. So they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, Why are you helping the Hebrew women? To give birth to see them upon the birth stool? If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared Elohim, and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So Elohim was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared Elohim, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Chapter 2 now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile, with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moshe, because she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about in those days when Moshe had grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a prince or judge over us? 
Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moshe was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moshe. But Moshe fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moshe stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Reuel, their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hands of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moshe was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moshe. Then he, she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to Elohim. So Elohim heard their groanings, and Elohim remembered his covenant with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Elohim saw the sons of Israel, and Elohim took notice of them. Chapter 3 Now Moshe was pasturing the flock of Yitro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and came to Horev, the mountain of Elohim. The angel of Adonai appeared to him in the blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moshe says, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When Adonai saw that he turned aside to look, Elohim called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moshe, Moshe. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the Elohim of your father, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Yitzhak, and the Elohim of Yaakov. Then Moshe hid his face, for he was afraid to look at Elohim. Adonai said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaani and the Hitti and the Amori and the Perizi and the Hivi and the Yabusi. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moshe said to Elohim, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship Elohim at this mountain. Then Moshe said to Elohim, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Elohim said to Moshe, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Elohim furthermore said to Moshe, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Adonai, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Yitzhak, and the Elohim of Yaakov, 
has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Adonai, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaani and the Hitti and the Amori and the Parisi and the Hivi and the Yabusi to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say. And you, with the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, Adonai, the Elohim of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to Adonai our Elohim. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, and the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and your daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Chapter 4 Then Moshe said, What if they will not believe me, or, or listen to what I say? For they may say, Adonai has not appeared to you. Adonai said to him, What is it that in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moshe fled from it. But Adonai said to Moshe, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that Adonai, the Elohim of their fathers, the Elohim of Avraham, the Elohim of Yitzhak, and the Elohim of Yaakov has appeared to you. Adonai furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs, or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moshe said to Adonai, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Adonai said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Adonai? Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth, and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Adonai, now send the message by whomever you will. Then the anger of Adonai burned against Moshe, and he said, is there not your brother Aharon the Levi? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as Elohim to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform these signs." Then Moshe departed and returned to Yitro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. 
And Yitro said to Moshe, Go in peace. Now Adonai said to Moshe in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moshe took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moshe also took the staff of Elohim in his hand. Adonai said to Moshe, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Adonai, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that Adonai met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took out a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moshe's feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now Adonai said to Aharon, Go, meet Moshe in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of Elohim and kissed him. Moshe told Aharon all the words of Adonai which he had sent him, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moshe and Aharon went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel, and Aharon spoke all the words which Adonai had spoken to Moshe. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that Adonai was concerned about the sons of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. Chapter 5 And afterwards Moshe and Aharon came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Adonai, the Elohim of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Adonai, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Adonai, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The Elohim of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to Adonai our Elohim. Otherwise he will fall upon us with the pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moshe and Aharon, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors? So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it. Because they are lazy, therefore they cry out, Let us go and sacrifice to our Elohim. Let the labor be heavier on the men, and let them work at it, so that it will pay no attention to false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal with us this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are being beaten, but is the fault of your own people. But he said, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to Adonai. So go now and work, for you will be given no straw.
yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moshe and Aharon as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, may Adonai look upon you and judge you. For you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moshe returned to Adonai and said, Oh, Adonai, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and yet you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter 6 Then Adonai said to Moshe, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Shemot. Now in this Parashah Shemot, it's also known as Exodus. Uh, in many ways, this is the story of Moshe, of Moses. See, there's three stages in Moshe's life that we will see play out in this book of Shemot, of Exodus. In the first stage... He spends 40 years in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, living as a valued member of Pharaoh's household. The next 40 years he then spends out in the wilderness as a shepherd, outcast from those things that he had previously known. Then he lives another 40 years, as we will read on, as a different kind of shepherd, but a shepherd nonetheless. We see in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus that the children of Israel suffered hardship. It says in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to Elohim. So Elohim heard them groaning. And Elohim remembered his covenant with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Elohim saw the sons of Israel and Elohim took notice of them. Never mistake delay for denial. The children of Israel had to wait generations in order to be saved from their bondage. Waiting is often Adonai's way of preparing us. We'll see that in this book of Shemot, Moshe is taught this lesson of patience again and again. The children of Israel heard nothing from Adonai. There was silence in the first one and a half chapters. In fact, Elohim is only mentioned twice both times in the story of the midwives, until we get to chapter 1 in the last three verses, and then he's mentioned five times. The children of Israel, they were crying out during this time, yet he was silent. He didn't respond. Moshe, the one who speaks with Elohim face to face, still, twice in his life, went through long periods where he also heard nothing from Adonai. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. But Adonai tests the hearts. Now a refiner's fire, the way it works, so a refiner would have metal in a large pot. And in this pot, they would put that pot over a fire and heat that fire up so hard, so hot, and so bright that the metal literally melts in that pot. When it reaches the stage that it becomes all liquid, then the impurities at a certain heat would rise to the surface and the refiner would take a stick or a piece of wood and he would skim the surface of that metal, pulling all the impurities out. It's called dross. 
It's referred to as dross, those impurities are. The refiner would continue pulling out all that dross as the heat was applied to the metal. More and more dross, more and more impurities would rise to the surface. And the refiner would skim those off of the top. The refiner would know that the metal was ready to be used for its purpose when there was no more dross. And the measurement for knowing that there was no more dross was that the refiner would be able to look down into the pot of metal and the, the liquid metal would be so molten that he would literally see his own reflection. You see, it takes time to remove dross. It takes time, heat, pressure to remove these impurities. Are we willing to wait upon him for deliverance, even if it takes 40 years? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, Adonai is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Hallelujah. Praise Adonai that he has tarried long enough to call this poor, wretched soul to repentance. May he continue to draw all men unto himself. And may he return in the day and the hour that he has deemed to be the right time. Even so, come quickly, Lord Yeshua. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, let's uh, open up our scriptures to our Haftorah portion. It begins in Isaiah uh, chapter 27 at verse 6. Uh, and before I get into this passage, let me just uh, tell you there's a little bit of diversity and a little bit of complexity with this Haftorah portion as how it fits into the first portion with Exodus. First of all, there are two different passages that are used by uh, the Jewish people when it comes to the Haftor that goes with this Torah portion. The Ashkenazic uh, tradition, that is the European Jew, the white Jew, the ones that went into the Western world, uh, into America and so forth, they use this passage from Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah chapter 27. However, the Shephardic tradition, that's the Moroccan Jew, the North African Jew, the actual Middle Eastern Jew, the one that spread off to the East and other Middle Eastern countries, they use the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah as to be their passage that they do it. Now, they really have a parallel, and the reason why they're selected to go with this particular Torah portion has to do with the greater theme of what the Torah portion is about. Ephraim, as he shared with you and went through uh, Shemot, uh, he explained how God, uh, you know, has uh, Israel down in Egypt and things begin to change. And there's a new Pharaoh and all of a sudden the children of Israel are beginning to be oppressed. They had been successful there for some time. They had prospered. They had increased. You would have thought everything was going great, uh, except for the Egyptians began to change on them and became taskmasters, and Pharaoh became alarmed, and, and all of a sudden they began to treat Israel as an enemy with great suspicion and began to, to, to inflict harm. Children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Well, this was all part of a great prophecy that God had already told Abraham. Abraham had been told that his descendants would go down into the land. They would be down there for at least four generations and that the Lord would bring them up out of that land at a future time, and that they would plunder that land. They would plunder Egypt when the Lord brought them up. 
which it hinted at there would be conflict. There would be some kind of conflict there. So we have the start of the book of Exodus, and we have this people, the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, that are now, according to God's promise, being brought up out of the land of Egypt. And, of course, it begins the story of the Exodus and how God will judge Israel's enemies, namely Egypt in this particular case. And as we all know the story, Israel will come out and there will be a whole series of things they're going to have to learn. They're going to have to learn the Torah, and and they're going to have to learn how to obey the Lord. And, and at first blush, they, they, they don't do that so good. But they do make it through the wilderness journey, and the whole rest of the book of Exodus is telling us, you know, that whole journey, and much of the Torah covers it. One of my simplified teachings of the Torah is to, since I've been teaching it for a bunch of years, I can break it down into a couple of sentences. The Torah is really the story of one generation that came up out of Egypt, traveled through the wilderness on a journey to the promised land that had been promised by God. That's really what the Torah is about. Uh, The book of Genesis is just explaining how in the world did they get stuck in Egypt to begin with. And if you recall, after Jacob and his children, 70 went down. So the book of Shemot starts with the 70 that went down. What happened to them? How how the descendants of those 70 are going to be coming up out of the land. And so... If you step back and you take a a larger view of things, and that's where the Haftor portions come in, Isaiah, the prophet, as well as Jeremiah, the nation is, the nation of Israel is in the land with, with Isaiah and with Jeremiah, but there are enemies. In the, in the case of the Assyrians, um, with, with, um, Isaiah, in the case of the Babylonians with Jeremiah, take your pick. Here's Israel in the land, and we have these enemies. Well, the same thing. Israel was in the land of Egypt, and suddenly Egypt became enemies. And it talks about uh, God's purposes to preserve, protect, and deliver us out of those situations. And that's essentially why these parallel passages go with it. If It's the big macro picture of that God purposed, it was promises made to the fathers, purposed to bring Israel up out of Egypt, deliver them, and to do good to them in the end by bringing them to the promised land, establishing them as a nation, giving them the Torah, and and setting them up correctly. Now, I want to to kind of help you to understand the dynamic of these Haftorah portions because they get a little bit complicated and I don't want to bog you down with all the complications and the minutia detail level of the stuff. Let me give you, since we're Americans here and most of us, the, the dynamics of what's just taking place in our nation. I want to give you a modern day parallel to kind of what this Haftor portion is doing. Our nation, the United States of America, we've just gone through this election process. And we have a new leader. We have a new president. Um, and there's great controversy over it. Half the nation is for him, half the nation is opposed to him. And fundamentally, it's not about the personality of now President Trump. That's not really the, the fundamentally, let me tell you what the great conflict is. The great conflict is 
Do we as a nation want to continue on in the way that we were founded and the way that we began? The whole idea of the progressive movement is to view what this country has done in the past with its constitution and the things that we've gone through for the last couple of hundred years is to say that those things are archaic and that the constitution never took into account all of the modern kinds of nuances and issues that we have today. And therefore, we need to depart from that or migrate from that greatly to address the modern issues. This is the progressive argument. The conservative argument is says, no, 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 wait a minute. The Constitution and what it said established the base principles for our nation to be unique from other nations. And while we can, we have all of the structures, the court system, the representatives of the people, the executive branch of government that can handle whatever contingency, whatever problem comes up, but will hold to the original principles that were instituted by the founders of the nation. And there's a fundamental argument that's what, what in the Supreme Court, what they call an originalist versus a progressive. And one of the big debates over the presidential election is he gets to appoint the Supreme Court justices. And right now the court is four and four split. Some want to hold to what the Constitution said. There's four of them that say, no, let's move on. And we're just giving lip service to what the Constitution says. And we've previously had a president who did not honor the separation of powers in the government. He usurped many things that the Congress is supposed to do and did it on his own. And the Congress didn't stand up to it. And we got a mismatch of different branches of government, which the founders, if they were here today, they would go, oh, my goodness, this is not what we set up. And so you have this argument between originalists, conservatives, and progressives. Well, let me just tell you, Israel, and particularly when this passage of of Isaiah and Jeremiah is doing, they have the same issue. They are now in the land. They've been there for a while. They know where they've come from. They know the promises of the fathers that were given to them. They were given the Torah, which is like their constitution. And suddenly, we're in the days where enemies are coming and threatening, and there's threats. And there's some of those that are in Israel, rulers and leaders and so forth, they're saying, let's move on and become more modern given the circumstances that we have to face with our neighbors. And others are standing up and saying, no, let us hold to exactly what the Lord gave us. Isaiah is a man in his day for 40 years stood up like an originalist. And he said, let us do what the Lord said and let's stop playing these games, these modern games of drifting away from those truths, those principles and getting ourselves in all kinds of trouble. And fundamentally, what was at stake was as the Assyrian power came to power, world power, and they, of course, would invade the northern part of Israel. They would take the ten northern tribes captive. Judah was spared from it. Judah and the southern kingdom, the, the modern leaders were saying, let's go make an alliance with Egypt to be against Assyria and 
here's Isaiah saying, don't make an alliance with Egypt. You have the Lord to protect you. You have the Lord to defend you. Now, I'm certain that in his day, that must have sounded just as silly as in the political debate today. What do you mean the Lord's going to protect us? I mean, you know, that's, you know, that, that, that's religious stuff. That, that's a uh, spiritual hocus pocus, archaic, ancient uh, stuff. That doesn't work in a modern world. I'm sure that's exactly what the arguments were in Isaiah's day. Same arguments going on in our country. What is at stake with our country right now today is exactly what was at stake with Israel in the days of both Jeremiah and and Isaiah. We know this ancient story of God's purposes of pulling us out of out of Egypt. It was according to the promise to made to the fathers. He takes us, delivers us from those enemies, takes us, gives us the Torah, and then takes us into the promised land and to establish us as a nation. So we're talking about national issues. And Isaiah is referring back to the original stuff, what originally happened. Jeremiah is referring back to the original stuff to try to get the people of Israel to hold to what is the original plan that God has been doing for a long time, and it's been working. Yet the modernists, if you will, we're saying, oh, no, we, we don't believe that. We, we need to figure this out. We need to, you know, adjust and, and modify. And today we have the same issues going on in the United States of America and in the Western nations. Europe has flat given up on its Christian heritage. The United States has been severely bruised. In fact, I, I think Christianity and uh, things for the United I think they're down for the count. I think we're, you know, the referees just standing over counting off the number 10. But the dynamics are the same. They replicate. We are a people here in the United States that have lost sight of our own constitution. Just like the children of Israel lost sight of the Torah. The supreme law of the land. Our leaders no longer hold to the faith of the God of our fathers. Just like Israel's leaders did not hold to the faith of Moses and those that were leaders. The only voices standing up in those ancient days was like Isaiah and some other prophets, and they didn't like what they were saying. And today we have conservative voices standing up, Christian voices standing, and there's a whole lot of people who don't like us. Uh, in this last week, some of this kind of came into focus. This is an example to me what I call living Torah. This last week, I'm sure that you have heard about this in the news. There's a, a certain black congressman, very famous. His name is, is John Lewis. He was a very famous fellow in the civil rights movement. He worked with Martin Luther King uh, to help bring about the Civil Rights Act changes in our culture, how we deal with racism, particularly racism against black Americans. But it broadened into the, the, the greater issues of uh, that we don't want racist policies and we don't tolerate racist activities and speech um, in our country anymore. Not not like we used to have. And he's and to a certain extent, he's a little bit of a hero for that. 
And I remember, I, I've lived through this time frame. I remember that the, one of the reasons why Martin Luther King and the civil rights leaders were successful, the reason why it appealed to those in the country who would listen to their argument and, and would agree with them contrary to the racist bigotry that was going on, was that they would tie back into the Constitution. They would tie back into major spiritual principles. They would tie into these, these principles of truth, of freedom, and life, and, and that, that God has given us its definition for, that comes out of the Torah, which was the basis of the Constitution of the United States of America. That all men are created equal by a creator. That God is the one who brought us about. And uh, Martin Luther King, which we just observed um, the holiday for him this week, uh, one of his famous speech, you know, about when he stood on the Lincoln Memorial and said to a very large assembly, he says, I'm hoping for the day when my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And uh, that kind of thinking, that kind of highly principled thinking was born out of what the Constitution was about, was born out of what the Torah teaches us, and, and that's the reason why the, the guys who wrote the Constitution were great believers in Scripture and used the Scripture as, as the precedent-setting principles that they embedded into uh, the Constitution. However, we live in a time when people don't like those constitutional principles, and they certainly don't like the biblical principles. And they want they want they want to make the rules differently. Now, this man, Congressman Lewis, sat down this apparently this last week, had an interview, and he's talking about our new President Trump, and he made the following statement that he did not consider that President Trump was a legitimate president. Now, the reason why he's saying is, so to kind of clarify what his point is, that the process that brought him to win the Electoral College, part of the argument is, well, he didn't win the popular vote, but he won the Electoral College. And, oh, by the way, the Russian hacking thing, it may be influenced. We think that he conspired with them. And, and, and there's no evidence of this whatsoever, by the way. In fact, the intelligence committee have already testified before Congress that any hacking didn't change any votes. The voting of the American people was the voting of the American people. The Russians had nothing to say with that, had nothing to do with it. And what is fundamentally at stake, and we've got a whole bunch of liberals and progressives arguing, you know, we need to change this electoral college thing. This is a major constitutional definition where the Constitution says the American people don't elect the president, states elect the president. It's the United States. This is the Constitution of the states that are united to decide who will be the commander-in-chief of all forces to protect the states. It worked in conjunction, the Constitution, that we recognize there's communities and individual states, and then we're going to form a federal element that will be above that, that the states will be determining. But 
people forget that we're a representative republic. We're not a true democracy. This idea would say, I vote in my state so that the state will have a say. That's what the Constitution set up. That's what the Constitution wanted to establish so that states would have a say. And like the election results here, if we just went by the popular vote, let me tell you who would have decided who the president is. Because Hillary Clinton got the most of the popular votes. It would have been California, Texas, New York, and one other north, new, new Easter, um, uh, northeastern state. Do you want those people to be the only people who have a say about who's going to be in the, the head of the federal government of this country? What about Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas? Don't those people have a say? And remember, the Constitution didn't set it up for individual citizens. It was setting up for the United States. If we wanted to set it up as one nation, then we would all have an equal vote and it would have been one nation. But no, the Constitution said, no, we're going to recognize the rights and sovereignty of individual states. It's just that we've agreed to be united. All of this was discussed by the founding fathers. All of this was worked out. It was all ratified. It's all been agreed to. And there is a change amendment process in this if people want to take the time and go go do it. And by the way, the Constitution has been amended several times over the years. It's a living document that can be changed and can be amended. But when the guy, John Lewis said, I don't consider him to be a legitimate president because he didn't win the popular vote. You know what he's actually saying? And by the way, I'm not trying to make a big political speech here on this deal. This ties directly into the issues concerning the Torah. He's saying, no, we got a better idea. And our better idea is I want my way. And there's more of us than you. And I'm going to ignore that we all live in different places and there's different issues all over the country. It's just I'm going to get I'm, we're, we're going to have our way. And despite that, we already agreed to do this other way, this process with the other way. I don't like the process because I don't like the results. And so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to discredit the whole process and I'm going to say that he's illegitimate. You know what he's just done? That man took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States as a congressman. And he is now making a treasonous statement telling systems, citizens to no longer follow what the Constitution says which is the supreme law of the land. That is what is at stake at this country. Now, that's your modern parallel. Let me tell you, in Isaiah's day, it was the same issue. Are we going to hold to the Torah and what God did when he brought us up out of Egypt? And delivered us from his, fulfilled his promise to the fathers. Are we going to stick with God's plan, working with our fathers, building, giving us the Torah, bringing us into the land, giving us the land? And are we going to continue to keep this nation going, honoring God and following God? Are we going to do something different? Well, a whole bunch of people in Isaiah's day, in fact, many leaders, said, you know, 
I think we need to form cooperative relationships with other nations and be a little bit more like them. I think that would be the better way to deal with the controversies of our day. In our world today, individual sovereign nations are going, you know, I think the better way to get through the world here is let's take a globalist position. Let's relinquish our sovereign rights as an individual nation. Well, it just watersheds down. Let's also relinquish the rights of the states in the United States, and let's just make it one big global thing. And it's going into the world level. Let's just make it one global thing. Let's destroy the identity that started us. Let's not listen to what God said to Abraham anymore. The God of Abraham, I can say. Let's stop listening to the instructions that Moses gave us in the Torah. The laws that he gave us to, to govern ourselves with. Let's come up with a new thing. Well, in our country, let's no longer pay attention to what Washington and all the founders argued over and spent so many years working out to give us a constitution. And let's not follow the constitution anymore, especially when it comes to the business of voting who is our top leader. Let's just abandon the electoral college system, which guarantees the states elect the president. And let's just make a popular vote. And we all have one vote. And that way, we guys in New York and over in California, we get to run the whole country. And all them other people that are in between us and the flyover states, well, they're nobody anyways. We're the elite people. We're the smart people. We know what we're really doing. They don't know. I want to share a, a true story of when I was in the business world. And I uh, used to travel quite extensively. And some of my travels took me up into Boston in the New England states. There's a. A very famous Air Force base up there near Boston called uh, Hanscom Air Force Base. And uh, I used to work through that as a government contractor. And so we worked with a lot of people who were up in that way. I got a chance to sit down and talk to a fellow that lived up there, you know, had lived there all of his life. And we were working on the same program. And he, he was from New England, and he was a Democrat, and he was very liberal. Me, I'm from the middle of the country, the flyover states. I'm conservative and Republican. I, we weren't asserting that. We weren't trying to make a big deal out of it. We were all working on the same program, working on the same task, helping the government out with what we were building. But it, I had the opportunity to ask him one day, very seriously, I said, let me ask you something. I said, you know, you're up here in the New England states, and uh, originally up here in Massachusetts, Lexington and Concord, this is where the Revolutionary War got started. You know, the shot heard around the world, this is where... The local militia took on the British you know, forces, and that started the Revolutionary War. And the whole country was born out of the original colonies, and, and New England was a very important part of that history that formed our nation and so forth. And I said, given that, I said, do you really, and I, and I phrased it this way, in your heart of hearts, do you really believe that you folks that live up here in New England really know best for the whole country and that us that live out in the hinderlands, the, the middle states, the flyover states, we really don't have quite the, the proper understanding to really have a real say about things 
were just obstacles to good things that need to happen. But you really know the right path that the country should go. Do you, do you really believe that? And I'll never forget his response to me. He said, uh, heart of hearts? Yeah, I do believe that. I believe that the people that are, live up here, that we, we understand the country better than others, and I, I think we should have more say about how the country should be run. And I thanked him for his candor and for his honesty, but then I also followed it up and I said, well, you know, there's one thing those people out there in the hinterlands know that you don't know. And he kind of looked at me and he said, uh, what do you mean? And I said, well, those folks out there in those other states, they know the difference between a donkey and a jackass. I am not making this up. It was a few minutes later he came and he asked me, what's the difference? He didn't know. The absurdity of what happens when a people that are the benefactors of a nation that has been given to them with hundreds of years and multiple generations and founders who put their lives on the line and has been generations have supported that and that there's a core set of principles that defines that nation and defines the, the definition of that people and for the later generations, the youth, the, the laters, to get in their thinking, well, I'm going to be a little bit more liberal in my thinking. I'm not going to stick to that anymore. I'm going to do something different. The harm that is done to that nation is incredible. Now, the very principle I talked about in the case of ours, this is exactly what happened to Israel. Ancient Israel. They had principles. There were people who put their lives on the line that God used to establish them as a people, gave them a definition as a people, gave them a definition of a nation with promises and provision to establish them, to cause them to become great, even though they were a very small group, to become a great nation, just like the United States, small nation, become one of the greatest nations in the world. Same thing happened to Israel. And now that we've rised up to the point where we're a very powerful thing, we've lost sight of where we have come from, and we have lost sight of who in the world was our truly our great benefactor. And we're trying to create another path, another set of principles, another another way of doing things. And the people that are in this elitist mode, they really, truly believe they're smarter than everybody else. And everybody else is archaic and ancient and old and stupid and dumb. Right now in our country, half of our citizens look at conservatives and they would just as well do violence to us than tolerate our existence. Welcome to ancient Israel. The same mistakes that were made by Israel we're doing in our own country. I find it absolutely ironic. So here's this passage. 
which Isaiah is going to be trying to, what I've just given to you, let me share with you how Isaiah tries to express this. First of all, let me just tell you that in this passage where we've got here, Isaiah is a very complex prophet. Very sophisticated. In fact, the terms that's used by uh, the Hebrew scholars is he has splendor in his teaching. He is majestic. The orations that he puts in here addressing these issues are stunning things. And to really appreciate the text and what he's done, I can't possibly in this time frame really give you the essence of it, but I will point one thing out to you right now. If you look down through this passage, if you start at Isaiah chapter 27, uh, even at first verse and on down through verse 6 where we begin, do you notice how the text uh, has been indented? You get to verse 12. The text in your Bibles will be out to a wider margin. And then you get into chapter 28. Again, the text is indented. Uh, it doesn't fill up. Let me tell you, Bible printers, what they're doing. The part that is indented in the original Hebrew text is written in a form of poetry. It's not normal prose. Normal prose would be verses 12 and 13. But the poetry of what Isaiah is doing, he expresses these things, these things he's concerned about, things he's trying to provoke Israel into rethinking what they're doing and get on a different direction than the way they're going. He uses a very flowery, majestic, a very unique way of presenting a written message. In fact, a good cantor with this written in this poetic style could probably sing this to you. Isn't that fascinating? Not only is it profound what he said, but it's even profound in the way it would be expressed to us. Now, I cannot sing this to you. And by the way, since we're translated in English, we don't quite have the same appreciation of the rhythm of the words or the poetry that is in the Hebrew. But we do need to recognize this is a very interesting piece of text that has been given to us. And by the way, some of the prophets used to do this as a very powerful technique. It was a way of saying difficult things to the audience to get them to receive it so that they can at least process and start thinking about what it is without just openly offending them. You know, it's a little bit like it. Let's say that you wanted to come up and you wanted to correct someone. And instead of just walking up and saying, well, you need to correct that, you you got humorous and you spoke a limerick. You, you spoke a limerick about what he was doing. And, and everybody kind of chuckles and notes the, the little limerick uh, thing to it. But you got your message across without not necessarily offending everybody. And, and somehow it was acceptable. That's how sophisticated this text is and what is being expressed here. So let me, I want to begin at chapter 27. What one heck of an introduction on the author portion there. Um, let me read to you from verse 6, and I want you to take note of a couple of things, because we're going to get into chapter 28, 
And I want to really focus because chapter 28 stuff applies to you and me today. Same parallel, same issues for us today. Beginning at chapter 27, verse 6, in the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout and they will fill the whole world with fruit. What a wonderful message. That's a wonderful message. You know what Isaiah is talking about? He's talking about the Messianic kingdom. There's a day coming when this plan that God has done is going to be just absolutely glorious. Now, that's in sharp contrast with where Israel is at the moment, afraid of the Assyrians. In the case of Jeremiah, afraid of the Babylonians. Could be harm coming their way. All kinds of tension, all kinds of struggles going on. Different political points of view. Not everybody's in agreement. The whole nation's kind of divided whether we should follow the Torah or not. Whether we should believe in the God of Israel or whether we should move on and be like other people. He goes on to say, like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, has he been slain? Thou didst contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he expelled them on the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin when he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when Asherim and incense altars will not stand. Basically, what he's saying is, when will it come about that good things will come to Jacob. It's when God inflicts full judgment upon their enemies and you take all those idle things that are running around here in the, and you pulverize them to where they're dust. When you destroy every one of their altars that have been set up against the God of Israel and you take down all their Asherim, their, their, their totem poles, their sacred poles and pillars and, and uh, trees of praise and you get rid of it all. That's when good things are going to come. So it, it's in a, in a, and by the way, this is in poetry form. So you're listening and going, oh, you know, kind of singing along with it, kind of, uh, uh, uh. oh, you mean the stuff that we're doing, that's got to stop? You see, that, that's really the message of him. But let me take you now, let me move you to the end of that when he gets through with all of that. Verse 12, and it will come about in that day that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and those who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. You see that phrase, in that day? You're going to find that all through chapter 27, chapter 28, and I believe, well, that's it. You're going to see that introductory phrase. What day is Isaiah referring to? A day when we're in the kingdom. The day when Jacob is really Israel and Israel is the kingdom. When this great plan that God started with our fathers, bringing us out of Egypt, establishing in this land, that the future generations will finally come to the point where we will live out and be what God wants us to be. It goes to the macro level of the question, why did God bring Israel out of Egypt? 
because they were complaining? No, he brought them out of Egypt because he originally said to their fathers that this is what he would do with their descendants. He would make them a great nation. And that he would establish his kingdom so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And part of that plan was to establish a nation that would be a light to the other nations, would set the example for the others to follow. That's the big plan. Now he has to bring them out, establish them as a nation so that we can carry on the plan. That's, that's the big plan. If you lose the vision of what the great plan is that God's been doing all along, guess what? You're just lost. Because those liberal fellows who are thinking about new things, they don't have a plan. They don't have a new concept, a new principle thing. They don't have a plan that's better than the original plan. Let me tell you what the liberal guy, the, let me tell you those that want to take issue with the Constitution, those that want to take issue with the Torah, you can, it, this parallel is just in, impeccable. They, it, anytime you have those kind of people, let me tell you what they're really after. They just want their own lusts satisfied. And by the way, the Bible says your lust can never be satisfied and you have just made a terrible decision. And the damage done will not be limited to you alone. It will affect everyone around you. The whole people, the whole nation, even other neighboring nations will be harmed by it. Um, taking the modern day application. I would love to see. They're not going to do it. So this is my opinion. I would love to see that any government official who has taken an oath of office to the Constitution suggesting the electoral college results that has chosen Donald Trump to be the president of the United States, the states have decided it, that any person who takes issue with that and tries to delegitimize the presidency of Donald Trump, they should be arrested and charged with treason for violating their oath to protect and defend the Constitution. If they don't want an electoral college system, they don't want votes stating for it, then get your act together and go into other citizens and get the other states to agree with you and amend the Constitution. That is the proper way to make adjustments. Just like the Torah teaches us, the proper way to make corrections when things are being done is that we follow certain principles. If a man sins against you or errs against you, you have recourse. And, and there is a way to address it properly. You don't get to just go over, well, I don't like him, so kill him. By the way, you don't get to stand up in this country and say, well, I don't like him as president, so I'm not going to consider him to be the president. I'm sorry. You're just talking through your hat and you're an idiot. You, you cannot make the Constitution go away by you just mouthing off that you want something different and you don't like the result. You can't make it go away. There is a proper way to amend the Constitution. And by the way, that's not the way. Not protesting in the streets. Not refusing to go to the inauguration. 
And by the way, Israel, just because you decide, well, I'm not going to follow the Torah anymore. I think I'm going to go off and do my own thing. You're not going to change the commandments of the Lord that way. By the way, i got news for you. You're not going to change the commandments of the Lord at all. The Lord is the one who gave those commandments. You cannot go change the Lord. The only decision you really have is do you want to agree with the Lord or not? And we, as basic citizens, we make a fundamental decision. Will I obey the supreme law of the land or will I not? If you're a good citizen, you say yes. I will be a law-abiding citizen. By the way, the scripture teaches us as believers that we're to honor and respect the authorities and the laws that are established for us. Because they're all predicated and based upon the principles of what the Torah was. And I can assure you, this constitution, this constitution was formed on the basis of principles that came out of the Torah. They went right to the scriptures and they structured a three-part government based on Torah principles. And they only gave a certain amount of power to the leader based on lessons learned from the scriptures. And they recognized the functions of government for the benefit of the citizens, which, by the way, God established the nation of Israel for the benefit of the people. Not for God's ego, not to oppress any other peoples, but to establish a people and let them become a shining example so that it would draw others to follow. But we've lost our way. My time has basically come to a conclusion here. I think I've made my basic point. But I want to leave you with this, on this. As you get into chapter 28, this is the part that applies to us. Um, in chapter 28, the prophet goes on to, and he begins to address, wait a minute, how are we supposed to really understand this? And if you look at verse 9, he says, to whom would he teach knowledge? To whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken for the breast. But he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary. And he said, here's repose. But they would not listen. The instructions of the Lord are given in such a way that I don't care what state of maturity you're in, you can receive benefit from the instructions. I've always said of the Torah and of the scriptures, the very same scriptures can amaze a child and profoundly stun a wise man. The very same words. That's how capable they are full of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And it is our goal to learn those things so that we can live and live better. Let me take you to, though, what the conclusion of that is in verse 14. Let me read this passage to you. Isaiah 28, verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. And I would say the same thing to the rulers of this world in this generation, the rulers of this nation, the ruler of other nations. You need to listen to this. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact, the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Boy, does that describe the governments of the world today. 
They know trouble is coming. We got all kinds of trouble on the horizon. And they've said, well, we're, we're, we're going to take care of it. We're going to use deceit and lies and we're going to lie to the people and we're going to lie to one another and, and we're going to cover ourselves in deception. And that, that's how we're going to take care of this. And you know what? There are actual leaders that think that's really smart. In fact, Hillary Clinton in her campaign specifically stated these words. There is one thing that you say to the people, but there's another thing you say to the leaders. That's in the old school. That's called being two-faced. That's the, the code of a liar. By the way, President Obama was in, in, in full suit doing that. And that's very apparent. And they think that's the smart way of doing things. The Bible is saying here, you scoffers of God, that's what you've been doing. This is not going to work for you. And he goes on to say the following. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness in the level. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the water shall overflow the secret place. And your covenant with death shall be canceled and your pact with Sheol shall not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become its trampling place. The tested cornerstone, you know who that is. The Messiah. When I make him the king... Of kings. When I establish his kingdom, all this other stuff these leaders have been doing, you won't have any covering. You will be judged. You will become the trampling place. We're talking about the second coming. These are the issues of the last generation when we have the coming of the king. The very issues that happened in ancient Israel, the very issues we see today. In the world today. Another sign of the end times. I wish I had more time. I could go into Jeremiah and show you the parallel of what he says there about the Babylonians. But it's essentially the same message. So we'll conclude with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the Sabbath. Lord, we not only thank you for the Sabbath, but Lord, we lift up to you our new president, and the leadership of our of our nation. Let us learn the lessons of the past. Let us as a people, those that want to stay with the original understandings, the original principles, the ones that have guided us before, and our trust in you, Lord, let that prevail in this land. We pray for that, Lord. And we ask for it in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, to chapter 7. Hold your finger at verse 17, where we will do our Brit Hadashah portion for this week. And let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for giving us your Sabbath and allowing us this time, this opportunity to teach and share the word of the Lord. 
Father, I pray that the words would just jump off of the page this week and that it would minister to us, strengthen us, and tell us those stories of old that we might learn and become better followers of you in all the words and all the things that is taught for this week and for all the weeks to come. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you give to us here in this place and on this day. In Yeshua's name, amen. Our Torah portion this week is Shemot, the first portion in the book of Exodus. This is where the entire story of the Torah has now shifted away from the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And now we learn about the name, a man named Moses. And that the whole story, this is where the story begins of Moses and him being called by God to pull the children of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage, and out of Egypt. This is, of course, sometime after Joseph being the one, being the Hebrew that uh, saved the entire world, interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh, became the viceroy of Egypt. And then years go by and it says in the scripture that a Pharaoh rises up that does not remember Joseph. I don't know how you necessarily forget that in the course of a period of years and history, but nevertheless, that's what happened. A Pharaoh rises up and then the children of Israel who came down to into Egypt to be preserved, to be saved from the famine and all of these things, they grow into a great company, a great multitude. And this is where the story of the Ten Commandments, the Exodus, the plagues of Egypt, all of these things, Pharaoh hardening his heart, all of that story now begins here at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So here for our Brit Hadashah portion, what we want to do is we want to always teach the principles and teach the story of the Torah through the New Testament, through the eyes of the New Testament. Well, we have an amazing passage of Scripture here in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen the martyr, when he is counting and recounting the history of Israel, all the things that he knows and the power of God and what God has done for the children of Israel, when he's here and he's on trial in all of these things, and what happens is he's he's telling the story. He's telling the story as concise as anyone probably could sum up the scripture. And so here in uh, Acts chapter 7 at verse 17, he goes through pretty much everything we're going to experience in our Torah portion. And he sums it all up with these words. So let me now read. Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 17, and hear the words of Stephen. This is a first-hand witness of a, of a first-century person in how he knew the story to be of what the children of Israel experienced and what happened with Moses back in Egypt. Beginning here now at verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, when God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them, and they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? 
But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, in a bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush? He brought them out. After he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Obviously, that last little bit, he's continuing on in the story and the deliverance of the exodus of the children of Israel. But here we have some of the summation of what is contained in our Torah portion for this week, the portion of Shemot. We're introduced to Moses being born. And there's interesting details that come here in the testimony of Stephen that are actually go a little bit beyond what is actually in Exodus. When it specifically says that he was hidden away for three months, specifically, that it's like some have speculated, what, what is this deal where he was able to be hidden for three months? Because one of the things that we remember is that the Pharaoh had commanded all the children of Israel, any sons born, to be cast into the Nile. That there was some population control going on by that Pharaoh and that they were all to be killed. And so he was able to be concealed for three months. Some have speculated that this is actually one of these things, one of the opinions that Moses may have been born premature and that we, he was born premature. So then there was an expectation of when he would be born. So the soldiers and the Egyptians would come looking for him at a certain time. But he was able to be born and was able to be preserved for at least three months before the Egyptians came knocking. That's one of the theories. And so the whole thing about him being delivered as well, there's many theories about him being floated on the River Nile. And he was simply being hidden away in an ark or in a basket. But we know the story. The daughter of Pharaoh found him. And there's been much deeper studies as to the fact that why him knowing that he was a Hebrew baby... Was he allowed to remain alive? And then Rico uh, Cortez has a great teaching about how the fact that there was a, the ancient Nile god, what the Egyptians would have believed is that if this baby was floated on the water and he had been cast into the water, that then the, the Nile god had spoken and had delivered the baby. So they would have uh, kept this baby alive because the god spoke and preserved the life of the baby. Very fascinating and very plausible explanation as to why knowing Moses was a Hebrew, why he was left alive. We can dig into all of those different stories and, and, and all of the things in the birth of Moses and, and what his life was like. Interesting other details that come here from the story of Stephen here is he says that it was 40 years old that he when he visited his brethren and that was is when he killed the Egyptian. This is an interesting contrast because you'll find other extra biblical texts 
specifically the book of Yasher and others, that would say that Moses was 18 years old when he killed the Egyptian and then fled. Here we have the testimony of Stephen in the first century in our canonized scripture saying he was 40 years old when this happened. Again, theories and trying to figure out and understand which is true, which is not. It's also fascinating by, by Stephen's testimony that Moses' life had three very distinct periods of time in it, all of them being 40 years in length. We know Moses lived to 120 years old. If he lived his first 40 years in the house of Pharaoh as an Egyptian, and that the next 40 years he was then a, in Midian and was a shepherd, and then it was at 80 years old, he was called by God with the burning bush and then goes to Egypt and delivers the children of Israel. And for the last 40 years of his life is the wandering in the wilderness with the children of Israel. Very fascinating distinction to three separate equal lengths of time in the life of Moses. Fascinating details that we can continue to dig in and go into. But one of the things that I do want to draw out of the teaching that comes from the first portion in Exodus that I hope to convey is this experience of Moses in the burning with the burning bush where he's speaking to God and God is revealing himself to Moses. See, that's what that that's the part that kind of speaks to all of us who are believers, all of us who are seeking after God calling upon God, praying to him in our time of need, worshiping him, thanking him for the food that we eat, thanking him for everything that we do. For those of us that have a strong prayer life, who are believers, who pray before every meal, who pray with our kids when they put them to bed, all of us are on some kind of journey to try and figure out, you know, how does God reveal himself to us? And you sit here and you look at Moses and you're like, wow, Imagine that if each and every one of us in the course of our life could have a burning bush experience that you could not deny, that you could not argue with, this supernatural thing of a bush that's on fire or some other sort of thing that you know can't exist in the natural world. And out of that thing comes the booming voice of God speaking to you clear as day what you are to do next. What an amazing blessing that would be if each of us as believers could have that kind of experience. Now, some of us actually do have testimonies of things like this happening, of feelings like which the God, God revealed himself to you in, in some miraculous way and the time in which you became a believer for the very first time. Some of us do have testimonies of a burning bush-like experience. Now, I don't know if, all, if they necessarily compare to what happened with Moses here, because clearly with Moses, seeing something supernatural that couldn't possibly happen, God speaking to him so much so that say, oh, by the way, take off your shoes. Like, I mean, God is speaking to Moses as clearly as if you invited somebody into your home and you had a rule in your home where you wanted people to take off their shoes at the entryway and you told them clear as day, oh, could you please remove your shoes? This is how God spoke to Moses. We, don't want, we could only hope that God would be so clear with us. And he reveals himself to us. He reveals his name. He reveals the name of God, and it's in our Torah portion for this week that we get and receive the memorial name of God. yod Hey vav Hey, the Tetragrammaton that's been translated, and people have spent their entire lives trying to figure out how to properly say it. What's the right pronunciation? What's the proper pronunciation? Some people get a little caught up in some of those things. It's a struggle sometimes when people overemphasize one particular thing of how to say a certain name. 
I can think about it this way. If, I ever, if I'm ever talking to somebody that has a particular accent or from a different country, and if they were ever to try to say my name, you know it's going to sound different from every single person that tries to say my name Ephraim? I might prefer the pronunciation Ephraim, which is just kind of an American quick way of saying it. But if somebody wanted to call me Ephraim, Ephraim, it's all going to sound a little bit different. But I know who you're talking about. And also, if you have an accent or I know you're from a certain way that has a different dialect or a certain, uh, you know, you don't pronounce certain sounds in your alphabet or your language as much. In Hebrew, they use the sound when they're speaking. But in the English, we don't say that at all. So it's like everybody's going to have a different kind of pronunciation. This is one of the things that's always encouraged me to not be so focused on how to pronounce the name of God. Truly, what God wants to know in his people is what their heart is. Does their heart love God? Is their heart tuned to God? Or is it just this cavalier relationship that we have with God that we just sort of like casually speak about God, talk about God? Or does God know what our heart is truly to follow after him? You know, there's sometimes my children don't really say daddy or mommy very well or they. But if I see what the, that they're coming to me or this, we misspeak all the time. My heart sees their heart and their love toward me. And I don't have a problem if what came out of their mouth sounded a little bit different or wonky. And I would have the same, I would, I would express the same thing to my friends in New Zealand and anybody who's, uh, who's from Europe that would say a name, say my name, say God's name, say the name of this ministry in some sort of strange way. And I would never be offended at that because I know they have a different dialect. It just sounds a little different. That's one of the things why I never want to overemphasize for me personally one particular pronunciation of God's name over the other. And to dare say that somebody isn't saved because they don't say it the right way. I'm never going to be one that's going to die on that particular hill. But here we have, once again, of course, God is trying to reveal his character to us. It's not about the name. It's about his character. Who is he? What power does he have? What's his desire? He loves his people, the children of Israel who are in Egypt, then he says, I have surely heard their suffering and their oppression. And I will go and I'm sending you to go and do. God has love for his people. The covenant that he made with Abraham extends throughout all the generations of Abraham. It also extends to anyone who's adopted into the family of Abraham, that his love is for them. This is the character of God. He's going to send somebody and he is going to make himself known to the world. Make himself known to the Egyptians. And it's not about what the, his name is, because all the Egyptians, all they had all these names of all these gods. And does God just want to be one more name on top of all the other gods and just be like, oh, yeah, that's the one true God. But all of these other gods and here's the names and here's the list and here's this. No, 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 no. What God is trying to reveal in all things in the course of our lives and in the course of history is who he is and the power that he has. And what, what, his, what his character is, that's what God is revealing. It's not about the name. And God is d d using Moses, this man, that he's going to speak through him. He's going to perform signs and wonders with him. And he's going to, to lead him and he gives him this burning bush experience that then is going to cause him to be the vessel by which God is revealed. God is going to use him and speak his words through Moses. And showing Pharaoh and showing the children of Israel. And he's giving them signs and wonders. One of the cool things also is this is not the only time that God performed this great sign or this great miracle. 
to lead a man to be the one who's now going to speak the words of God. And this is where we get to tie another passage from the New Testament in with our Torah portion. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 22. Now, this isn't the first time that this event is recounted. But what we have here is we have the story of Paul, Shaul of Tarsus, the man who was a Pharisee, the man who was actually one of the ones that persecuted Stephen, who stood by idly while Stephen was martyred at the time because he had not yet come into faith and become a disciple of Yeshua. See, because what he happened to him was he had an experience. He had an experience on the road to Damascus. Now, that's recorded for us earlier in the book of Acts. But once again, we have another trial here of Paul on trial. And he's recounting what he saw, what he experienced. And it's amazing to me the parallel of that the same sort of thing in this instance of what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus is so similar to actually what happened to Moses in the burning bush. So in Acts chapter 22... Now let's begin at verse 6, and let's listen to this testimony of Paul and the things that he said and what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near to Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Yeshua of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Shaul, receive your sight. And at the same hour I looked up at him, and he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple and I was in a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Let me go ahead and stop there. You can see some of the same revelations that are happening with Paul in Acts. And you see the similarity between what Moses was called and how he was called as well. It's amazing the word persecution is in both of them because God said to Moses, surely I've seen the persecution of my children of Israel, of my of my people in Israel, in Egypt. And here Yeshua speaks to Paul and he says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing the things that you have done? And again, this supernatural event that takes place is what gives the revelation to Paul to know this is of the Lord. 
This is the Lord calling me and leading me to now do something that I haven't done before. A new area of ministry, a new area of work, just like Moses. Moses is 80 years old. He's already lived a long life. And now this whole new thing that he's going to do is he's going to go lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Well, now Paul, he's getting the same call. And I love here what this devout man says to him as well, where he says, The God of your fathers has chosen you that you will know his will and you will hear the voice of his mouth and you will be a witness to all men. You can see some of the almost the same language that's being spoken to Moses that what he is now going to do when he when God says, I will be in your mouth, I will put my words in your mouth. And so the amazing parallel. And here we have Paul in the New Testament, Moses in the Old Testament, and this revelation once again of God using these men, giving a burning bush-like experience filled with light and with glory and with, with majesty to let them know this is now the calling that is on their life. Once again, God has a pattern of doing this. Now, does that mean that we need to just sit on our hands as all believers? We just need to sit on our hands and wait for some kind of burning bush before we decide to to do what God has called us to do. No, we need to continue to pursue God, pursue the Lord in all the things that he's taught us to do, obeying his word, obeying his commandment. Some of us are called to do great things and to do great work. All of us could could um, I believe any one of us has the potential to be the next Moses or the next Paul who God has a plan and a purpose to do great things and to work in ministry and, and, and to teach the people and that God will use them and speak through them to minister to the people. God has a pattern of doing this. Both the Old and New Testament testify of that. So what we need to do is we need to continue to follow after the commands of God, continue to seek him and his character and who he is and the power that he is. And if God ever comes and calls upon us that we say, yes, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Use me. Show me what it is that you'd have me to do. And sometimes he'll use other people around us to speak life into you and say, this is what the will of God is for your life. And we need to always be receptive to that and understanding of that because God is in the in the business of revealing himself to the world. We always want to pray that Lord will reveal himself, not in the way that he did to the Egyptians with great signs and judgments and wonders and turning your life completely upside down and rocking your world to let you know that he's there. Sometimes some of us are so stubborn and hard hearted that uh, that's exactly what God has to do to get our attention. Hopefully we're ones that instead are walking righteously, uprightly. Maybe we're just going about our day. Maybe we're just shepherding a flock, going about our job. But we're doing so understanding the power of God, what God has done, so that if someday comes, you never know. If God then says, hey, you, come over here. Show, let me show you this. I will now, you're now going to do this in your life. Follow my will. Speak my words. Hopefully we're all in a place in which the Lord gets our attention that way than perhaps needing great signs and judgments to get our attention. Sometimes the Lord has to use those things too when it comes to flashing neon signs. If, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as your car breaking down or something, something happening to you to where you couldn't get to your job that day or you lost a job or something happening in your family. In all cases, usually it's God trying to get your attention for you to stop and think, hmm, what path have I been on? What have I been doing that perhaps I need to change. I want my heart to be humble. I wish that I could just follow God and do what he wants me to do. Well, that's the approach we need to take. 
We need to be ready for that call if it ever comes. Now, other parallels to our Torah portion for the for Shemot for this week. One very obvious one. You have the Pharaoh of Egypt telling and commanding for the killing of the babies of the of the Hebrews to be cast into the River Nile. And that obviously there's a there, there's a couple of there's speculation about that as to whether um, there some uh, biblical texts say that there is, was a prophecy that there would be some savior that was born of the Hebrews that was going to deliver the Hebrews, the slave, all the slaves from Egypt. So to keep that from happening, we were going to kill all the sons of the Hebrews so that there was no prophet that came along. Some people speculate that that may have actually been a true story or something. And that's why Moses, he, because if that was a prophecy, truly Moses was the fulfillment of that prophecy. What a fascinating thing that that is. But also in Matthew chapter 2, we also have the story of Herod, the king of Israel, Judea at the time, that him, the killing of the innocents of all the sons that were born in Bethlehem, where God calling Mary and Joseph, who had just birthed the Messiah, and that he was that they were commanded to flee to Egypt so that they might be preserved. And all of this story with the wise men being sent by Herod, and then they don't ever come back to actually report back to Herod. Herod becomes angry, and so he commands that all of the sons, two years old and younger, anyone that was around in the area of Bethlehem, that all of those children were to be killed. You see the exact same parallel with Pharaoh with the life of Moses being preserved and also the life of Yeshua being preserved in the New Testament. Excuse me. One of the other amazing parallels that has to be drawn out when it comes to this Torah portion. When God was speaking to Moses from the burning bush, Moses goes, talks back to the Lord and he says, Lord, how will the people know that you have sent me, that I'm not just on my own accord coming and saying, I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt. How will the people know? And if you remember correctly, God gives Moses three signs, three specific signs and miracles that he can do and perform for the people that will show that God's power is in Moses. And of course, you remember what the signs were. A couple of the signs were this. You had the serpent that Moses, he took a staff and he put it on the ground and it turned into a serpent. More than likely a cobra is what we think it was based on the Egyptian culture and things that this was also going to be a sign to show the power of God over one of the gods of Egypt. In fact, the cobra was the sign of Pharaoh. Every Pharaoh always had the, the, the cobra little symbol on his headdress and that that was a, a symbol of the power of Pharaoh. And so if Moses comes along, takes a stick, an inanimate object, turns it into to a serpent and then picks it back up again, turns back into a stick. It's showing that Moses has the power over that symbol. This was going to be an affront, of course, to Pharaoh. What well, the other sign, of course, he says, Moses, take your hand, put it into your cloak, put it in his cloak, pulled it out. It was leprous. It was white, it was spotted and leprous. Then he puts it back into his cloak, pulls it out, and it's healed, and it's clean, and it's, it's healed again, just like normal. So he gives them this power of showing instant healing, specifically healing of leprosy. And then, of course, he gives them Moses the, the third sign in which that he says that you can stretch out your staff over the water, and he can turn water into blood. This, of course, was the very first judgment of the plagues of Egypt that the entire River Nile was turned to blood. Water in the in the house of the Hebrews were, were was still water, but then water not only in the Nile, but also in jars and in pots, and that water was turned to blood. Now, these miracles 
We all know the stories, of course, that this is what Moses could do, and we've seen them played out in movies and different things like that. And surely these are, sure, these are great signs to show the people uh, that God's power has been, and Moses has been called by God to perform these miracles and to be the one that delivers the children of Israel. So now let's go to Yeshua. What are the signs that Yeshua did, the miracles that him as the savior of the world, what are some of the miracles that he was able to do? Now, perhaps the order is slightly reversed, but I guarantee you that there's absolutely clear representation of each and every one of these things that Yeshua did as well. If you turn to John chapter 2, we have the very first miracle of the Messiah in which he was at the wedding at the Canaan, at uh, Cana of Galilee. And it says here, and it says the mother of Yeshua was there. Now, both Yeshua and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Verse 3, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Yeshua said to him, they have no wine. And Yeshua said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I don't know what the truly the dynamic between Yeshua and his mother exactly were in this whole situation. I'm, I'm, I try to look at it and say, you know, if Yeshua was sort of like saying his time wasn't yet, then why still was a miracle performed? Eh, question marks. But needless to say, he performs this miracle. Now, there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Yeshua said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled it up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests are well drunk, then the inferior and you have kept the good wine until now. Obviously, this was some of the best wine. It was obviously very good. Not only is this just water into wine and that it's cheap wine. No, the, the Messiah made a great miracle of a fine wine. I appreciate a good glass of red wine. I can certainly appreciate how good this wine probably tastes. And this, it says in verse 11, this beginning of signs Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The beginning of signs, the first sign, water into wine. Now, this is one of those struggles for some of our brethren who uh, have an issue with strong drink and various things that you have to reconcile the fact that Yeshua made water into wine. Some people have speculated they actually made it into grape juice and a bunch of these things are mistranslated. I'm not going to get into that. However, what's really going on here? What is the sign? What's the purpose of this miracle? Well, what the purpose of this miracle actually is, is it's showing that Yeshua himself had some of the same miracles that God gave to Moses. See, as far as Hebrews are concerned, when we're talking about the joy of life, the blessing of life, drinking wine, red wine, strong drink, it's about the joy of life. It's all about life. And blood is inside our bodies. The blood is our life. Our life is in the blood. As far as Hebrews are concerned, blood and wine, one and the same. So the fact that Moses was given a miracle to turn water into blood and Yeshua performed a miracle of water into wine, we can draw the conclusion it's basically the same miracle. And so what we see here is we see the same God that called Moses is the same God that called Yeshua to be the Messiah. That it's like we're not talking about two different gods here. We're talking about a, not talking about a different God of the Old Testament and a different God of the New Testament. No, it's like if you believed in Moses, 
If you followed him, if you understood his words and his instructions and what God did with him, it will help you to understand what God was doing with Yeshua as our Messiah. That God himself becoming the flesh of Yeshua and performed great miracles for us to understand. This is the first of the signs of Yeshua, and it was one of the signs of Moses. All right, so now let's, uh, let's go to uh, John chapter 4 at verse 46, where it says this. This is story, talking about a story of a man whose uh, son was healed. Instant healing, in fact. Yeshua came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made water into wine. And there a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And he heard that Yeshua had come to Judea into Galilee. And he went to him, and he implored him, and come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. And Yeshua said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The noble man then said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Yeshua said to him, Go your way, your son lives. Not a physical sign that he actually revealed to any of the people that were there that saw. But he told them, Your son lives. The man believed the word of Yeshua spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met with him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And he inquired by them uh, the hour by which he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, and the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour that Yeshua said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Yeshua did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. The second sign. It's actually recorded for us in the scripture. The second sign. Instant healing. Same sign gave to Moses. The instant healing of putting his hand into the cloak. becoming Coming out leprous. Going back into the cloak. Coming out clean. Now this of course, you could just take that one and it says the second sign of Yeshua did. And it's like this is again, signs of Moses. That God is doing the same thing. We also can go to Matthew chapter 8, first couple of verses, immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. What's the first miracle that, that the Messiah did after the Sermon on the Mount? He healed the leper. The leper came to him and he was healed and he was cleansed. The ability to cleanse leprosy, which is an incurable disease, Yeshua did and he performed that miracle, just like Moses could as well. Once again, these are signs and evidences. The God of Moses is the God of Yeshua who sent Yeshua the Messiah and gave him the power to speak these words. So what about the third sign? The third sign of Moses and the serpent and being able to put it down in on the ground, becomes a serpent, and then comes back and it becomes a staff again. Now, there's some interesting speculation about, about some of these things because we have the Messiah specifically say to the people that it's like that surely the Son of Man will be lifted up as Moses' staff in the wilderness. In fact, I believe it specifically says that in chapter 3 at verse, uh, at verse 14 and 15. So we all know from John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Did you, do you ever memorize the, word, the verses that came right before that? Well, here they are. Verse 14 of John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is, of course, the sign of which the crucifixion of the Messiah himself being raised up and whoever looked upon him was given life. Now, this also connects to a later story in our Torah where we're talking about the uh, serpents that came and bit the people and that Moses made a bronze serpent on top of a sign and a staff and he raised it up. And whoever looked upon that on that, they were healed. 
This, you can draw the, the, the connection of all that. Serpent raised up in the wilderness, look upon it, healed. Yeshua performed that exact same sign. And we could, I think we can draw that out um, and, and we can explain it that way. Here's the other way that I like to see it as well. Is that when you're talking about a serpent, you're talking about something that a lot of people don't like. A lot of people are scared of serpents. We were talking about a venomous serpent like a cobra. In ancient times, if you got bit by one of those things, you were a dead man. We also have the serpent that's the symbol and the representation of Hasatan, our adversary. That he's the one that was the serpent in the garden that was the mortal enemy of man. That the judgment upon both of them is that the serpent will, will bruise the heel of, of man and man will tr- try to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent represents something that's evil. So why do we necessarily associate that and being lifted up, a snake being lifted up, and then that's the Messiah, that's what we're supposed to look at, this symbol of death is supposed to be our life? Actually, that's exactly what it's supposed to be, is that the serpent that represents death, that Moses was able to control it. He was able to to, to have complete power and control over it. He took something that was inanimate, dead, not alive, his staff. Well, it was once alive because it was a tree branch here, but it was dead. And he put it down on the ground and then suddenly it becomes something alive. But that thing that it became alive is actually a symbol of death. And if that snake bit anybody or whatever, everybody would be afraid. They'd be fearful of it. Did Moses have any fear of the serpent? No. Because God commanded him, and he's like, pick it up by the tail. Just reach down, you go pick it up, and then suddenly that thing that nobody would have touched or would have approached, that symbol of death, Moses just walks up and picks it right up, turns back into his staff. So what's really being represented here? Let me tell you. What's really being represented here is a power over death. That snake, there was no fear in Moses of that snake. Everyone else was afraid. But we're talking about clearly a miracle is the miracle that the staff turned into a snake and then back into a staff you know that the the magicians of egypt thought it was a magic trick but what's really being represented here perhaps the real miracle that's happening here is the power over death the thing that might kill you you have no fear of it whatsoever god has power over death in fact it specifically says that as well in our scripture, let me conclude with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 50, it says this. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery that, shall not all, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the death will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed for the corruptible must put on incorruption and the mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah. Therefore, my brethren, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That through our faith in Yeshua and what Yeshua truly has done for us is he has given us the power over death. He conquered death. Death could not hold him. Three days later, he walked out. 
There, that tomb was empty and death could not hold the Messiah down. And him, having the power of God, being God himself, showed power over death. This was also the sign of Moses. This is what he did. These are the power of things that God gave to Moses, the signs for him to do. It's exactly what Yeshua did as well. The power over death. And that is our testimony as believers of Yeshua. That we are made alive. That though we might be mortals, we one day will put on immortality and we have eternal life. And though we are corruptible, we must, through through our testimony of Yeshua, put on incorruption so that we can then live as God lives. And giving us all of these blessings and and these things that we will all be changed one day at the last trumpet to be incorruptible. To be immortal. In which death will have no power over us. That's what we all could wish for. That's what we all hope for. Is that we have no fear of death. Because we believe in a God that has power over death. And through our belief in him we have eternal life beyond death. Death has no sting and has no victory over us. We've learned that from Moses. And we also have learned that through Yeshua our Messiah. So with that said, I hope that we are blessed here on this Sabbath day as we uh, close out uh, this week and receive the rest and the refreshment of Sabbath. And we are encouraged and strengthened once again in our most holy faith in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion, for the beginning of a new book of our Torah cycle. And Father, I pray that you would once again make these words alive and powerful to us, encouraging us, strengthening us, Lord and that we can continue to teach the principles that you have taught from many years ago, Lord, from ancient times through Moses and the patriarchs and the life of Israel. Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Father, I thank you, Lord, for the words of the New Testament and of the first century, Lord, that can encourage us, teach us, and strengthen us, Lord, that you are the same God of the Old Testament as of the New Testament, and you are the same God today, Lord, who continues to deliver their people from the slavery of sin, from bondage, from any spirit that is not of you, Father. So may we be strengthened, Lord, in our most holy faith, in all the things that you have done in our lives in modern times, and may we be encouraged of all the stories and the words of encouragement that come from ancient times as well. We love you, we bless you, and thank you. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Yevarechecha Adonai Vish Merecha
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit LLGive.com. Thank you and Shalom.